And uh, I got a little little story I want to share to help us understand what is meant by that statement, elephant in the room. So there was a, a wealthy man who traveled around the world, and, and uh, on one of his travels, he bought uh, an elephant, and he brought it home, and he gave it to his friend, and he said, here, I want to give you this elephant. You can put it in your, put it in your house there. Put it, put it in whatever room you want. And the friend was so shocked and, and amazed. He's like, wow, I, I, I mean, that's incredible. Nobody's ever given me an elephant before. Uh, thank you. And the guy said, don't mention it. See, that's the idea behind the elephant in a room. It's a big issue that everybody knows is there, but nobody wants to talk about it. Today, the room that we're going to talk about is the Christmas room. kitchens, and I don't know if you know the history of kitchens, but I actually looked up the history of kitchens, and the, the, you know, the origin obviously goes way back, and, and, and originally kitchens were not the, the place to be. Kitchens were hot and dirty and smelly, and there was a lot of people working in there. They were prone to catching on fire. They didn't have great ventilation. There were open fire cooking, so you know, kitchens were tended to be far away from the rest of the house. In fact, they were either way down in the basement or way in the back, but they separated the kitchen from the, the living space, the eating area and the entertaining areas and things like that. Uh, last year, my wife and I went to France for our anniversary, and it was really an awesome trip, and we got to tour some castles, you know, old houses, and uh, it was really neat to see the kitchens because uh, in one particular ha- uh, castle we went to, the kitchen was down in the basement. It was all the way at the bottom of the whole, whole house, and everything else was up in the upper floors. It was completely separated, but over time, modern conveniences, inventions, changes in society. Kitchens moved from the, the back to the, to the center of the house. I mean, we now have a phrase, trophy kitchen, right? And, and any realtor will tell you that the kitchen is the number one selling point of any house. So it went from the back or from the basement right down to the dead center of any modern home. Now, it doesn't matter whether the kitchen is in the middle or in the back or down in the basement. Because fundamentally, kitchens are about eating. For me, it's a very literal interpretation. I mean, we could talk about the kitchen table where the conversations happen. And yeah, yeah, that's all true. We're going to save those ones for other rooms. But for me, the kitchen is specifically, it's directly about eating. And so we're going to go to a passage of the Bible that talks about eating. And we're going to find out what elephants we might find in that room. Let's pray before we leave. Father, it is great to be together. We are thankful for your time and for our time to come to worship you. We pray, God, that your spirit speak through us, speak through me and to me and to everyone here in the auditorium. God, we pray that we will honor your message and your word with the honor that's due them, that we will let the Holy Spirit work in our hearts to tell us what we need to hear this morning in addition to the word, but also help us get the spirit. God, we thank you for this time to be together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to start in the book of Daniel. If you have your phone, open up your Bible app. You can get a, if you don't have a Bible app, you can download one if you have service in here off the Play Store. And go to the book of Daniel. If you have your old analog Bible with you, that's great. Uh, Or or on your handout, we have just one of the verses that we're going to be looking at. Uh, We're actually going to read the entire chapter of Daniel, chapter 1. So let's start now. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. 
It says, in the third year of the reign of Joachim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So the, the story here, and by the way, Daniel is a real historical figure. The events that we read really did happen. And we can verify that out, not just from the biblical accounts, but from historical accounts and archaeological evidence. And so there was a king. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. He did live somewhere uh, around uh, 600, 500 B.C. And he did siege and defeat uh, the city of Jerusalem. And when he did that, as was custom of the day, they would, they would loot the city. And, and in particular, they would loot the temple of whatever god was worshipped in that city. And of course, in the city of Jerusalem, that was the, the kingdom of the Jews. And they worshipped the god of heaven and earth, the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when Nebuchadnezzar looted the temple, he took all the treasure and stuff, and they took it back to Babylon. And they would put it in their temple as an offering to their god. And it was their way of saying... Our God is better than your God. Our ways are better than your ways. See, we defeated you, so we're better. And that's, that's in essence, the message that would have been communicated from Nebuchadnezzar to the world around him. The king of Babylon, or the, the, the empire of Babylon, had become the most dominant power at the time in the region. And so when Nebuchadnezzar conquered several different empires, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, etc., he did the same with all of them. And it was his way of saying, our, God is, our gods are better than your gods, and our ways are better than your ways. Let's read on. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defects, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned to them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen for some, for, for it, it, those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, to Azariah, Abednego. Now, not only was the loot taken, but so were people. This is very common in that day and age, uh, and it has been throughout the history of the world, that when one empire conquers another, not only do they loot the place, but they deport the people. And it was very, and, and, and that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. He actually took many of the children of the nobility, the leaders of the people, and he took them with him back to Babylon, where they were to be trained for three years to enter into the service of King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel was one of those kids taken, along with three, three other of his companions and probably a whole slew of other people as well. But the story that we're going to focus, but the story that I'm going to tell, we're just going to focus on Daniel. We're going to assume and understand that his three friends there and maybe a few of some of the others, we're, we're, we're going to lump them in with the story. But we're going to just talk about Daniel to keep things uh, less complicated and more, more simple. So he was carried away. The year is probably 605 B.C. He was ripped out of everything he knew, his little world around him, the nation of, of the kingdom of Judah, where all his people were, his God, his, his religious practice, everything he knew and was trained with. And he was taken into Babylon, a completely foreign and different culture, different gods. Everything changed 
from top to bottom. You can imagine the, the trauma that that would inflict on anyone who was just lifted out of their environment and put into a completely different environment, hundreds of miles away, completely foreign to them. And not only that, but they were servants. They were pressed into service. Now, the goal here was to re-educate and to indoctrinate them in everything Babylonian. And that included changing their names. Daniel's name was a Hebrew name, and it meant God is my judge. The other three friends had Hebrew names that all referenced God in some way as well. But like I said, we're focusing on Daniel. His name meant God is my judge. Well, they changed his name to Belshazzar, which meant Prince of Bel, which was the, one of the gods that the Babylonians worshipped. So they changed his name along with the other kids' names. Not only that, but then they re-educated him. For three years, they pumped into him everything Babylonian to try to, in many ways, to try to erase what had already been put into them in their upbringing. By the way, given their names, that they were references to their God, the Hebrew God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Israelites, the Jewish people, there, there's an indication there that Daniel was probably raised by devout parents, that he was probably well-trained in his faith. That's why the name Daniel existed. And, and as the story goes on, you're going to see more and more of that come out in the story of Daniel and, 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 his, and his companions there. So they change his name, and now they're re-educating him. And then they do something else, a third thing. And that is they change his diet. Hence, the kitchen. We're talking about the elephant in the kitchen. They completely change his diet. Now, the purpose of all of this was very simple. Total indoctrination. That's what this was about. We are going to we are going to turn these people into Babylonians. Now there were practical benefits to that. One is that then they could put them as administrators over the conquered their conquered countrymen, and it would be less likely for the the conquered people to revolt against their own people who were administrating them as would be being you know led by Babylonians, right? So there was some practical realities to doing this as well. But the but the core, the basic principle of all of what they were doing deporting them, changing everything about them, was total indoctrination. Now, I want to pause for a minute because as we go through the story, I'm going to kind of leap back and forth, right? We're going to talk about what's happening there, and we're going to see if there's an application to today. And so for a minute here, I want to just step into today and talk about the concept of total indoctrination. Because I really believe this is the elephant that's in the room today that we have to deal with. Just like Daniel and his friends had to deal with it, we have to deal with it. Now, maybe not in the same way. None of us have been deported or conquered and taken to a whole completely foreign land and everything about us changed. But we live in a society that has a popular culture, do we not? And the goal of that popular culture is to get everybody to conform to the popular culture. It's just something about human beings. I don't know why we're like that, but there's just something about us that we just don't want anyone else to be different. We want everyone else to fit into this box that we're in. And so there's a, there's a strong tendency in us, it could be good, it could be bad, I suppose, to, to conform, to fit in. And, and that's what popular culture really is. It's kind of the norms of, our, of the society, of the, of the, of the, of the uh, environment at large, right? And if you step outside of those norms, you can be ostracized, you can be criticized, you can even be 
persecuted, right? Because the goal is to beat you back into play. It's like having a fence in your backyard and one nail sticking out, and you just got to go hammer that nail back in because you want all those nails in nice and tight. It, it happened in Daniel's time, but it's, it's happening in our time as well. And just as we're going through the message, I want you to think about just in your head, you don't need to share it, think about examples of that that you see in the world around you. Because it's like the popular culture is trying to tell you something. It's trying to make you fit in or be like everyone else. Because that's the elephant that we're going to talk about. Verses 18 through 19. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But to the ofi- but the ofi- well, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other women your age? The king was looking at my face and not at you. Now the reason why this elephant, total indoctrination, exists in the kitchen is because in the story, the diet that they were offering Daniel was the thing that he was objecting to. Now pause for a minute because this is really interesting. Of the three things that the Babylonians were trying to put into Daniel, a name change, a complete new education, and a different diet, the only one that bothered Daniel was the diet. Now, I, I don't know what you think about that, but I, I, I go, that seems like the least of the problems to me. I mean, when I read the story, I go, what's the big deal? I mean, everything else seems much worse. Naming me after a false god and making re-educating me in your ways and, and all your things, everything Babylon, Babylonian culture and policy and politics and religion. I mean, those seem like so much bigger deals to me. But not for Daniel. It was the food that bothered Daniel. Now, what was the reason for that? Why was the food Daniel's big issue? I mean, it was such a big issue that as he was being carried into captivity, it says that he resolved. The Bible, another way to put that is it was in his heart. There was something in his conscience that was bothered. And, and, and so he decided, I don't come hell or high water. I'm not going to eat what they make me eat. That's, that's the hill he chose to die on. But what do you think is the reason for the food? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my opinion. This is, this is just my, my, my insight, my wisdom. You can take it, you can leave it. Maybe you have your own insight. But I'm going to put before you that I believe that the reason, and I want you to hear this, that the food was the issue because that was the only thing that was actually a sin. I mean, what's the big deal? If, if, if my name's Joe and somebody decides to call me by a different name, I'm not really sinning. And if I go along with it just because that's what everybody's going to do, then okay, so be it. I'm not committing any, any violation against my God when other people call me by a different name. Think about the education thing. We could, we could object there quite a bit. I mean, I certainly would want to object to the kind of education that somebody's trying to push down my kid's throat, right? By the way, Daniel was a kid. If you, if you, not, if you didn't catch that, they were the children of the nobility when he was taken in captivity, probably a teenager. And as a parent, I might object vehemently to what, what, what people are trying to put into my kids that I don't agree with. And, and by the way, in our popular culture, education is one of those ways in which culture is shoved down our throat. 
it's one of those ways in which we are trying to, you know, the world is the world around us is trying to make us fit in. But Daniel didn't object to that. I put before you he didn't object to that because it's not necessarily in and of itself wrong to learn about a culture that's different than yours. It's not even necessarily wrong to learn about a religion that's different than yours. Because there's a difference between learning and internalizing. But the food is another story. Because in the law of of Moses, which was the law of the Hebrew people, which was the law of Daniel, it was a sin. It was considered a violation against God, their God, to eat food that was defined as unclean. Now, I'm going to go on a tangent here, but but hopefully I won't get too lost in it because it's a fascinating tangent. But I I don't want to... I have a whole another place I want to go, but I got to share this because I find this fascinating. Have you ever wondered why there's food laws? I mean, it's one of those interesting things when you read the, the Old Testament, you read about the Hebrew people in the Bible, or maybe you've heard from friends and go, why don't you eat pork or why don't you do this? Well, I'm going to put before you uh, just a, one insight and, and hopefully leave it there, let you, let you chew on it. But, but in my research, my study, my understanding, chew on it, no pun intended, um, that the reason that there were food laws, part of the, part of the reason was that, that if you look at what was declared unclean, it was generally an animal or a food that, that couldn't be clearly defined. So I'll give you an example. Sharks. They're fish, but they don't have scales. They have skin. It's not clearly defined whether it's a fish or something else. A pig has the foot of like a cow, but it eats meat or anything. It's an omnivore. It's, it's crossing categories. Whereas a cow or a lamb, they have a cloven hoof and they eat uh, you know, grass and stuff like that. Or fish have scales and they swim in water and they don't breathe air. You see, they're clearly defined as what they are. And I believe that in all, many of the laws, some of the laws that we find confusing in the Old Testament, the laws that Daniel would have strictly adhered to, uh, they seem weird to us, but if you really step back and look at it, what God is doing there is he's, he's, telling, he's calling animals that are clean that are clearly defined as what they are. Because God believes in what's called purity, the unity of a substance, right? No, no mixing of anything else. And so animals that appeared mixed were considered unclean. Some people think, well, it was because, you know, they had poor uh, cooking rules and, you know, if they ate pork that was raw, you say, actually, no, that's not why it was commanded in the Bible. It was because certain foods and certain animals crossed categories. It's also why when you read in the Bible, there's strict rules against cross-dressing. Men are to look like men. Women are to look like women. And to act like, like that, right? God doesn't want us to mix categories. The Babylonians, their diet, we don't know exactly what it was, but I guarantee you it was a mixture of whatever they could find and they could eat. I mean, if you've ever traveled outside of the U.S., people eat some crazy things. Things that you would not think are food. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong because, and you know, this is a whole other point again, but things change as, 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 as uh, the, the people of God, God's people of faith moved on. God made made adjustments to some of these requirements. But we're talking about Daniel in the time that he lived, and in the time that he lived, it would have been a sin to internalize, to take in, to eat something 
that didn't fit a proper category. It was mixy. It was impure for him. That was the only thing that Daniel would have gone to. There's a second point I want to bring out of this. Again, this is free, no charge. But think about this for a minute. object to the other things, although they were objectionable. I'm sure it was objectionable to him to be called Belshazzar. And it was probably objectionable to him to sit and le- learn the history of the Babylonians and the, the ridiculous things they did and the things that he looked at and were like, this is horrible and gross. But guess what? He didn't object to it. And, and, and that, that says something to me. Because again, I'm, I'm talking about what I can take out of this today. That says something to me. I don't have, because I'm a person of faith, to be an objectionable person of faith. I don't have to walk around and be opposed to everything. In fact, there's very few things. There's a wide range of things that go on in our culture that the popular culture wants to shove down my throat. And I personally don't like most of it. But but I'm not bound by God because of of a direct command, like Daniel was when it came to diet, to object to all of it. And so you may be a different political persuasion than I may be, and I may completely disagree with you and find it ridiculous, but I'm not going to go so far as to say that you're somehow a sinner because you don't think the way I think when it comes to politics. That would be going too far. And there's some of us, myself included, that have gone too far. We find everything objectionable, and thus a stereotype gets formed. Church lady gets born. was a teenager and he had the wisdom the discernment to know when to hold them and when to fold them to 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 to, to know what hill to die on now that gives me a tremendous amount of hope i know in our audience today we don't have our junior high or our high school class so we have the the junior high and the high school kids in the class and i want to say Daniel was just like you. He was your age. And yet he showed an incredible wisdom and an incredible tact. Well beyond his years. Better than many of the adults that I, that I know of and even, even my own life. So Daniel, in his resolve to, not, to, to, to die on that hill, he demonstrated a faith in God that was independent of the cultural, political, and historical circumstances that were going on around him. His, his people were defeated, they were dispersed, his God was, was conquered, and, and from all worldly perspective, the, the outside world, it looked like, oh, your God's not really a God, he's a loser, he lost, he's nothing. In spite of all that, Daniel had a resol- held a faith, he had a resolve to stay true to his God. And, and then he had the discernment to know what hill, what battle to fight. And so he chose the one that was of issue to eat on. That was going to be a problem for him. So we could look at it like this. Daniel didn't let his faith get eaten away. Point I want to make, going back to his parents and his name Daniel, meaning God is my judge, and, and the indication there being that he was probably raised with some good quality parenting. They probably put into him the, 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 the principles and, and the basics that he needed to have. And, and, and I just want to say there's nothing can replace that. Nothing can replace a solid foundation. Character helps a lot. 
But if we're going to be evolved in this world, if we're going to live in a world that's constantly trying to indoctrinate us, we're going to have to be the kind of people that have a solid foundation. We're going to have to know the basics. One of the things we do in our church is we visit. And if we want to get into Bible study, we want to, anybody that comes to our church that's visiting for the first time, we want you to study the Bible. And we do them individual. We want to get one-on-one with you or a couple, two-on-one or whatever because we want to get down to the, the, to the, the, the brass tacks with you and, and, and figure out what is that foundation. What should it look like? Get those basics in there. Because once you have a foundation, then, then having discernment is a lot easier. Once you know right from wrong, it's easy. It's law. But if you're confused about what's right and wrong, it's really hard. You're guessing. You're shooting. You're stabbing in, you know, uh, shooting into the dark. So if you've not gotten into an individual Bible study, I want you to. As a matter of fact, if you're not comfortable with that, then I'm going to go so far as to say that come and talk to me afterwards, and I'll start a class if I have to. Whatever we got to do to get these foundational things in, we want to do. So again, if you're visiting, please talk to me. Talk to the person that advised you. Get in to a Bible study and get some of these basics, some of these foundations put in. So Daniel had a great foundation, and because of that, his faith didn't get eaten away. Verses 11 through 16. Then said to the guard, whom the chief official appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them the vegetables instead. Now, Daniel was faced with a big old elephant. You know, you got to fit in. We're going to indoctrinate you in everything Babylonian. And he had to deal with that. There was, there was some of that that he could live with, but there was some of that that he couldn't. And, and he figured out the part that he couldn't live with, and then he had to make a choice there. He had already resolved that he wasn't going to do it. But what I noticed is how Daniel reacted. He didn't have a hunger, hunger strike. You know, he didn't throw a tantrum. He didn't start a revolt among the, among the captives. As a matter of fact, he had a lot of tact for a 15-year-old, maybe teenager, somewhere in that, you know, 15 to 18, whatever, somewhere in the teenage years. He had incredible tact. And he was polite. He said, hey, please, let's try a 10-day trial. A couple of two-day follow-ups. He was smart. He, he was wise. And, and, and again, that goes back to the foundation. Without the foundation, you'll never get there. You'll never have that kind of wisdom, that kind of tact. But he had it. Again, parents, it was a big job fitting it in there. But, but you know, maybe you came from a home that that didn't happen. Well, we can still do it. We can still build the foundation. Get into a Bible study. But anyways, so, so he acted wisely. He dealt with only the re- re- relevant issue, which was the diet. He didn't protest or, or, or whatever. He, he was polite. He proposed a 10-day trial. And, and, and so he asked to eat only vegetables. And, and, and I want to I talk about this for a minute. Because uh, there are books written about this chapter of the Bible. And, and they're diet books. And they advocate a vegetable-only diet. And, they, and, and the implication is that, well, this must be God's diet plan. Now, I, do, 
think that's going too far. I'm okay if you want to eat that way. I, I don't have a problem. This is one of those issues we're not going to fight about. I'm not going to be objectionable over. But I don't know that that's what the point of the story is. The word vegetable, by the way, translated vegetable, actually the real word is a different word, and it actually means like food from the land. So it refers to like wheat and grain and fruits and you know, and you say, well, why did he choose that word? Why did he ask for only that kind of a diet with only water? Well, there was a, n- a number of reasons. One I already mentioned, because Daniel couldn't control the kind of food they would give him. They might give him something that was declared unclean, something that was a mixture of too many things or confusing. And because that was against God's law, he refused that. But he also couldn't c- uh, control the way it was prepared. Some of the laws that, that, that the, the Hebrews followed were how to prepare the food. Like, for instance, you, you couldn't eat an animal that had been strangled. Because God, God taught that blood is sacred, and the animal had to be drained of its blood because it was a sin to eat blood. Because it was as if you were eating the life of the animal, which is what pagan cultures actually thought. And so they would actually drink the blood to absorb the life of the animal. So he couldn't control how it was made. And then lastly, he couldn't control what they did with the food before they gave it to him. In other words, it was very common in Israel and in the other cultures that when you, ha- when you had a meal, you sa- it was a sacrifice that you were giving to God, and you ate the meal as part of the sacrifice to God. <laughs> so in other words, you'd go to the temple, you'd have your lamb, you'd slaughter the lamb, you'd, it, would be, it was a clean animal, you slaughtered it appropriately, then you'd cook it and have a meal with the priest at the temple, and the idea was you were, having, you were eating with God and the priest, and everybody was good, and you were in good relationship, right? It was part of your worship. Well, the, the pagan cultures did similar things. And so for Daniel to eat food that he didn't know where it came from, he didn't know that it had been sacrificed to their foreign god. And so there was lots of reasons why Daniel objected to the diet. And so in his wisdom, he figured the only way I can really can control this is to, to just ask for only vegetables and water. Because I don't know what they do with the wine. Do they offer it to their god before they give it to us? I don't know what they do with the, how they prepare the animals. I don't know what kind of animals they're going to give us. This was not, and here's my great line of the sermon, ready? I thought of this all by myself. I'm proud of this line. This was not a holy diet plan. This was a plan to be holy. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good line. I'm proud of that line. So again, let's, let's apply this to our lives. Do you have a plan to be holy? We live in a a popular culture. We live in a world that wants us to think some things and some, you know, lots of different things. And some of those things we may not be able to do because they may violate our relationship with God. The commands that God has asked us to honor. Do you have a plan to deal with those things? Are you prepared? When your child or your friend at school calls you hateful because you disagree with same-sex marriage. Do you have a response when you have a different opinion on, a, on, on sexual immorality or on abortion or on issues that are, that are out there in our culture that are being shoved down our throat? Are you prepared? Do you have a plan?
looking at things that aren't important, distracted, caught off guard, or unsettled by the, the changes that go on and ha- sometimes happen so fast. Think about Jesus in, in these night and day difference. One day he's a, a noble and being raised in the, the awesome kingdom of Judah, part of Israel, and worshiping at the temple. And the next day he's in chains and he's dragged off into Babylon. I mean, his life changed rapidly. And on the way, he resolved. He had a plan to be holy. He thought about the culture and the world around him. He looked at that elephant in the room, and he said, okay, i got to deal with it now. I can't just close my eyes and hope it all works out. Do you have a plan on how to, how to insulate yourself or your kids from the influence of drugs? Or the Internet, the bad side of things. When you think about it, just go back to the 1960s, let's say, and you kind of look at the world in in sort of generations, right? And there was the 60s. And when I I think about the 60s, a friend of mine made this comment. He said, man, it's so true. And, 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 And the comment he made was that parents raising kids in the 60s were totally unprepared for the drugs and the sexual revolution. They were not prepared for it. They did not know how to insulate their kids, how to build a foundation for their kids. And so when these things hit and they became popular in the culture and the culture began pushing that on everyone, what we found was a lot of people were completely unprepared. A lot of kids weren't ready to be able to defend themselves against it. A lot of families weren't ready to to cope with, didn't even know what was happening, couldn't even see it. I think the same is happening. There's another radical shift going on. And again, I'm, I'm not in the Bible here. This is my opinion, all right? But there's another radical shift that's going on right now, and that's the Internet. I put before you that none of us, us as parents and kids in this room, are prepared for the Internet. We do not know how to deal with it, yet it is everywhere. It is pervasive. It is shoved down every part of our lives. It infuses every element of our lives. Are we prepared? Do we have plans? I put before you, I don't think we do. And so I want to call you as believers, whether you're a parent or whether you're a a, a young adult, I'm going to call you to be thinking about these things. The world is trying to indoctrinate you, and you've got to have a plan on how to deal with it. The good news is the plan can be simple. If we get back to the foundation, if we get back to just the basics of what God teaches, that's going to give you a good starting point, and then you're going to be able to think more clearly and more wisely. But without a foundation, you're going to be a victim to what goes on in the culture around you. So we've got to have a plan, and it all starts Think of a better foundation. Know your Bible. Verses 17 to 21. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king uh, to bring them into his service, the chief uh, official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service, and every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. 
Daniel and Nehemiah until the first year of King Cyrus. The last part here is just a summary of the three years, the three years of training. And, and what we find out is that because of Daniel's resolve and his friends and their, 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 their plan to be holy, God blessed them. It wasn't the diet. It was the resolve that God blessed. And so they, they were proficient in everything Babylonian while at the same time being true to their faith. Now that's a dynamic combination. If we can be proficient in everything cultural around us, yet be solid and true to our faith, we can be a force to be reckoned with. We can be an influence on the world and the people around us in a way that is far exceeds the, the, the peer pressure and the indoctrination that the culture is trying to shove on us. A small example, a cool thing that I discovered in my studies. In five, 605 B.C., when, when, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar defeated Jerusalem and he took Daniel, he didn't completely defeat the city. I mean, he defeated it, but he left the city intact. And he came back later in 597 and had another round of looting and taking captive. And he took a, a, a man named Ezekiel, who's also a prophet that we read about in the Bible. And Ezekiel was in captivity and prophesied to the, to the, to the Jews there in captivity, calling them to stay faithful to God, etc. And, and, you know, Ezekiel in his prophecies referenced Daniel. Daniel became an example to the, to the generation behind him. And he was a captive in Babylon, yet his fame was widespread. Imagine that. A devout, religious Jew being a, 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 phenom, a phenom in Babylon. It says here at the end that he remained in the service to Nebuchadnezzar until King Cyrus. Nebuchadnezzar ruled basically 70 years. His empire lasted about 70 years. Daniel spent his entire life in Babylon. And at one point, he was put in third in command of the entire empire. That is a force to be reckoned with. If we can stay true, like Daniel, to our faith, to our convictions, if we have a solid foundation and we're willing to be open-minded and know where to, you know, and we have the wisdom to fight which battles matter and which don't, and we're open-minded to learn about the world around us, we can be incredibly influential. I hope and pray that many of us go on to do great things because when we get on that bigger stage, we can declare God's glory. We're examples to the world around us. I hope your kids, my kids, grow up to do great things. Yes, I'm scared to death of it. My son wants to be a rock star. I can't think of a worse object, you know, goal in life. I'm like, what is he doing? You know, it's like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Great. This is what we're dealing with, right? But if I can figure out how to get him solid and how to put into him a great foundation, and then becomes a rock star, he can be a force to be reckoned with. Some of our kids are involved in sports or other activities. Man, we should be the best we can be in the world around us and stay true to our faith. That's what Daniel was. He was an example to current and future generations of believers in every age. Regardless of the circumstances, God is looking for those 
not be indoctrinated with these things. He would stand on their foundation. But who would be used? Maybe that could be you. Maybe it could be your kids. Maybe it could be your neighbor who you invite out to church and studies the Bible and wants to, wants to know more. God has a plan. He's looking for a people. I started off with that joke that wasn't a great joke because nobody got it initially. That's okay. I knew that was going to happen. Um, but, you know, the whole idea of that elephant being in the room and we, we don't mention it. And, and uh, you know, I hope today that we leave here a little more aware of the elephant in the room, the, the culture around us that's trying to shove its food down our throats. But more importantly, I hope we have a better understanding of what we've got to do as a result, how we need to be prepared. And that starts with a good foundation. And from that foundation, we can be wise in how we uh, carry ourselves in the, in the community around us, and God can use us. At this time, I'm going to ask Phil Austin to come up. He's going to lead our thoughts in communion, and we will uh, spend time uh, meditating on the message and on the message of the cross. Thank you.